Good morning. Time for our memory verse this morning. Those of you who've been with us the last few weeks in Hebrews, we're memorizing a passage of Scripture that's three verses from our passage today. It's Hebrews 4, the fourth chapter, verses 14 through 16. And uh, at the top of your sermon notes there, if you haven't passed those down the aisle, please do so. I believe they're at the ends of the aisles there. That's on the top there, and it's, it's sectioned off into each week. From now on out, we'll do just a little bit at a time, and by the end of the 16 weeks, uh, in theory, we'll all have those verses memorized. Today is a hard one. It's uh, a whopping uh, five words. Jesus, the Son of God. All right? So let's just uh, say that together. Let's see if you can catch it. We probably don't even do it three times. Here we go. Ready? Jesus, the Son of God. Yes. So that first three parts of our memory verse is what we're going to practice here three times together in just a second. I'm trying to wave my magic wand. There we go. Uh, this is 4 through 16, just that first few sections here that we've memorized. Let's go ahead and say it together. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's do it two more times. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Third time. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Well done. While we're at it, I want to remind you that uh, we've challenged you to read through Hebrews during our series here. Um, if you could read through Hebrews once a week in our time through Hebrews together, you, uh, you, you may still be in that muddy swamp feeling as you're reading through now, but in the next couple of weeks, you'll probably start to come out of that fog and Hebrews will start to, to, to make a little more sense for you as a whole. So before we get into the text today, let's just sort of recap where we've come in Hebrews. If you remember, the book of Hebrews was probably written mostly to Christians who had been Jews. Christians who had been Jews. It was written to a tired and beleaguered group of believers who were starting to experience a little bit of persecution. A little bit of, of suffering and of persecution from non-believers for following Christ. They were being tempted to give up. So the author of Hebrews has sent them this, this sermon to encourage them to remain strong in their faith. To follow Jesus with passion. For all of the reasons we've talked about up to this point in Hebrews. Reasons like Jesus is superior to the angels that you all think, not you, but the Hebrews, that you all think are so cool and mysterious and worthy of, of speculating about and being interested in. Remember, we, we talked about angels as side dishes, and Christ is the main dish. The author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus Christ is not just superior to angels, but to Moses, the father of the Jewish people that you held up as a hero, superior to the high priests that we all grew up revering. This is talking to us as if we were those previously Jews here in Hebrews. The preacher here in Hebrews is saying what our, our big idea is for this series. And I've said this a number of times, I'll reiterate it again today. Jesus is superior for a reason. So that you and I can follow him with passion. So that we can have faith that is placed in a person who did what he said he would do. Following Jesus Christ with passion. 
can be a scary place because it requires us to follow him. Despite the circumstances in our lives around us, despite the fears from within and without that are in our ways as we go through life. And last week we talked about those circumstances and, and how in the middle of those circumstances of life we can, we can know and experience God's rest. We talked about the truth that, that rest in God is an invitation to live in confidence that his provision is enough. And that you and I cannot add anything else to that. Rest in God is experiencing peace and shalom when your circumstances feel impossible. It means living out of a passionate and loving relationship with God as a response instead of trying to justify yourself into a relationship with God as the condition of your acceptance. Rest in God can only be obtained through faith and entered into by faith. And no amount of our spiritual strivings can take the place of that faith. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, we ask that we would, through your spirit and through our time today, through the encouragement of being with the body of Christ, through kind words and kind smiles and warm handshakes and songs that we've sung and prayers that we've prayed together, that all of these elements would go together in a way that helps us to be people of faith, willing to follow you wherever you will lead us. Lord, we ask that our time together would be something where we are tuned in to your word, hearing you speak to us through your Holy Spirit and through your word which you've given us today. So we ask that our time would be fruitful toward that end. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. In, uh, in downtown Greenville this morning, about 1.9 miles away, um, about, I googled it, I'm a bit of a nerd, 1.9 miles away from here in downtown Greenville, St. James Episcopal Church is worshiping together. Our friends at St. James are worshiping, but they call their preacher, their minister, they call him a priest. Many churches have a priest, and their parishioners call him father. He is sort of seen as representing God to the people and representing the people to God. He's a mediator. He's a, he's a go-between. And this morning... At St. James down the way, there's a part of the service where the priest will symbolically take the prayers of the people and he will present them before God. He will symbolically also absolve the people of their sins on behalf of God. He will sort of symbolically declare them free from guilt because that's what a priest does. He acts as a mediator between the people and between God. And then at, at that service, the people will go to the table at communion, and the priest is the only one who can administer the elements of communion because he is seen as acting on behalf of God to the people. Now, th this isn't really a model that, that, that we use here at First Christian. And it's not simply because it's a little bit more of an Old Testament model. It's, it's not that we don't entirely believe 
in priests. In fact, I think, I think sometimes we act like our church leaders or our elder or our preacher or our teacher is a little more of a priest than we realize, but, but we'll come back to that later. It's not that we don't like Episcopalians or Catholics or some Lutherans who use priests. It's just that, that we believe that now we only have one high priest, Jesus Christ. And we believe that he is enough. And we want to keep that kind of priority in our minds and in our hearts because it has huge implications for how we live our lives. We'll talk about that later on. But we only need one priest, Jesus Christ, as our high priest. Because, as we're seeing in Hebrews, he made the final sacrifice for us at the cross. And he presented that sacrifice to God in the heavens, as our text says today. We only need one high priest because the former system of sacrifices has been fulfilled by the great high priest who atoned for sin once and for all. You see, that the cool thing about this is that, that even now, as we speak, Jesus Christ's perfection represents us before God the Father in sort of an upward kind of way, from earth to heaven. He is still perfectly holy, and his sacrifice as the lamb slain for our sins still works to maintain salvation and make it possible for us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is still representing God to us in a heaven-downward kind of a way, teaching us, being merciful to us, extending grace to us, forgiving us, and equipping us for ministry. So today's big idea is just straight out of this text in Hebrews 4. It's there on your sermon notes. It's simply this. God provided Christ as our great high priest as our great high priest through whom we find atonement for sin, so hold fast in faith and draw near with confidence. Today, like last week sort of was, today is going to be a bit of a lesson in Old Testament background. We're going to look at the Old Testament context and how it informs what we're reading today in Hebrews. We're going to study some of the mechanics of what a, what a great high priest did in the Old Testament. And that will sort of serve as our interpretive background for our passage here in Hebrews. We'll not spend uh, as much time as normal looking into the words of our text today, but I want to paint a picture. I want to paint a picture for you of what it was like to be in that Old Testament system seeing the high priest offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. Let's look at that first verse, though, before we do that. First verse in, in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse 14, it says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, because we have a great high priest, not just any high priest, not just an earthly high priest, like in the Old Testament, but a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. In other words, since Jesus is the Lamb who's qualified to enter into God's very presence, we are able to hold fast our confession. We're able to, with confidence, with, with boldness, that word means, to draw near to the throne of grace. That's the main idea that we're talking about today. In the Old Testament... 
a high priest, would make up for all of the sins of all of the people on a special day called the Day of Atonement. It was a special day of the year called the Day of Atonement. It was, it was the high point in the whole entire calendar for the Jews. And that high priest would go into that special place where only he could go only once a year. It's called the Most Holy Place. The Jews were kind of playing with their naming of things. There was a part outside of it called the, the Holy Place. It's it called the Sanctuary. And they called uh, that special place inside it the Most Holy holy place. They called it the the holy of holies. So on that day, the high priest, and there was only one, only one high priest, he would satisfy God's anger at the people's sin, his righteous anger at our sins by making sacrifice in what they called that most holy place. Let's learn about this in Leviticus, the 16th chapter, for just a minute. Turn to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, and we'll look at verses 3 and 4 there in just a second here. But not quite yet. (laughs) Leviticus 16 deals with this day of atonement. Now, during fall in the Jewish calendar, there's a feast called the Feast of Trumpets. It was known as Rosh Hashanah. And at that feast, it, it starts what they call the Ten Days of Awe. These were ten days of repentance and soul-searching. And the Jews would begin their new year with these ten days of awe because they wanted to get right with God at the beginning of the year. They would fast. They would deny themselves. They would search their heart for those ten days. They're In effect, they're saying, God, we want to start the new year right. We as a community, we want to start the new year by letting you clean us. So this Feast of Trumpets leads up to the Day of Atonement here in Leviticus 16. Look at Leviticus 16, verses 3 and 4 here for just a minute. It says this, This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. Aaron is that high priest with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. This is perhaps one of the few, uh, understandably few, references to underwear in the Bible. Verse 4 continues here. He is to tie the linen sash around him and to put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. We we need to understand sort of the the picture here. This is what we call the second temple period. And, And the temple mount was a huge, enormous, beautiful kind of place. There were some 210,000 people who could fit in that temple mount. It was an enormous kind of place. When they were done building this temple, 18,000 people were suddenly out of work. They have found that there were over 2.3 million stones in building this temple. Some of the stones were, were 10 feet by 10 feet by 80 feet and they were hundreds and hundreds of tons. Archaeologists today still don't know how they moved those into place. You see, they didn't, they didn't build it on site. 
they took it away, they carved the stone, and they moved them into place. To this day, we do not have machinery strong enough to move some of the stones that have been discovered in that temple area. So imagine this this huge, this enormous and, and beautiful place. Massive stones and, and gleaming gold fixtures. The smells of incense filling the air. One historian tells us that the gold at the top of this most holy place were clusters the size of a grown man. So imagine this kind of scene. A massive and stunningly beautiful place surrounded by a couple hundred thousand people who were gathered after their ten days of soul searching so that they can come before God to have their sins washed away. And on this day, on the Day of Atonement, the sounds and the smells were mixed with the sounds of animals and and sheep and the stench of, of blood and of fire. You could feel the heat. You could smell the blood and the animals. And the people were separated from this most holy place by a four-inch thick curtain that was replaced every year. The high priest, when he would go into that most holy place, he had a cord tied around his waist that would trail outside of the curtain of the most holy place just in case he died so that they could pull him out without having to go in. They took this whole system extremely, extremely seriously. The high priest would present God with a sacrifice from the altar. There was a bull and a goat, and he would cast lots, sort of like rolling dice, to determine which of the goats to sacrifice and which to use as a scapegoat. You see, they had two of them. One they would sacrifice and one they would send out into the wilderness after the sacrifices were made as a symbol of the people's freedom from that sin. And there was also a a red cord, a red cord that symbolized the people's sins and and it symbolized blood and and judgment and and punishment. And it would would be placed on the head of that scapegoat. And then the other goat and the bull would be sacrificed on the altar of burnt offering. Their blood shed on that altar. And then this, this one man, this high priest, would carry a large bowl of blood from that altar and walk into the earthly presence of God in that most holy place on behalf of the people. <laughs> They took this deathly seriously. Because if you're responsible for something of this magnitude, you'd better hope you've got everything in order. You better hope that you have followed everything exactly as it was prescribed. If you're the dude offering sacrifice on behalf of millions of people, you'd better hope you've got your sacred underwear on. So what's all this? What's all this massive stone and, and gleaming gold and, and ceremony and, and ritual? What is all this stuff about? It feels and, and looks and sounds so foreign to us. We, we, we don't have to kill a goat to make sacrifice anymore. It, it sounds crazy to us. The reason 
is because this is about the holiness of God. This is about a God whose character and nature and perfection cannot possibly be marred by the presence of sin. And so, nobody could do what the the high priest did. This, This setup of temple sacrifice and the rules and the regulations that were associated with it, it ensured that the Israelites knew clearly that they could only come to God in the one way he prescribed. There was no other way. Because this is about keeping God's holiness and his sovereignty and his perfections in mind. This is about a God who is infinitely perfect beyond our and their greatest thoughts of him. And it's about the people keeping their commitment to a God who was so holy that you and I, that they could not be in his presence because of their sin. So only the high priest could be in a greater presence of God. And only once a year could that happen. But like clockwork, it happened. Year in and year out. You couldn't, you couldn't just do the Day of Atonement once and be done with it. In fact, throughout the year in the Jewish calendar, there were many sacrifices that people would have to bring. Jerusalem was not the largest market for lambs in the world for nothing. And so Hebrews here is telling us in 4.14 and following, it's telling us that unlike that Old Testament system, which had to be repeated, our high priest fulfilled it all. Our high priest is the real deal. He's not just an earthly high priest. He's not just a temporary atonement until another sacrifice next year. He's the great high priest who makes atonement once and for all. And not only that, but, but get this. Jesus, as the great high priest, still represents us to God. So that you and I can experience his mercy and his grace from day to day. Look at the end of verse 14. We are called to hold fast our confession, it says. Why? Because he made atonement for us in the very presence of God. It says he passed through the heavens. This isn't an earthly system. This isn't in the Holy of Holies. This is in the very presence of God himself. He's passed through the heavens so that we can hold fast our confession. Verse 15 says, we don't have a priest. We don't have a high priest here on earth like they did who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, no, no. Our Jesus, our great high priest, was tempted as we are in every respect, and yet he is without sin. In fact, his sinlessness still works now. Whereas the high priest in the Old Testament worked just for a time. It was, it was a temporary system. So Hebrews is telling us, even now we can come to God in confidence. We can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and grace in our time of need. This point here in verses 14 to 16 in Hebrews 4 is sort of an introduction to chapter 5, 1 to 10. 
chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, sort of unpack this idea that Jesus is our great high priest. And, and we don't have time to go through all these verses, but, but let me just say this. Verses 1 through 10 here in chapter 5 are a carefully crafted statement, a carefully crafted reflection on the, the nature of Jesus' fulfillment of his call as great high priest. I've included it in the sermon notes uh, for the Bible nerds who want to look at it later. It's pretty cool how that structure works there to make this point about how that works out for Jesus. So, so let me just ask this question for us here. So what? You know, it's easy, it's easy to feel a little bit like, you know, that's, that's how that worked then, but, but this is different, and, and that seems so far off, and, and we don't make sacrifice. We, we don't call this an altar because we don't sacrifice. Jesus Christ sacrificed once for all. So it feels foreign. It feels, feels strange to us, like a far off and, and sort of distant world. Scripture, though, Scripture is teaching us here today that we have Christ as our high priest and that we draw near to God and not to a human relationship with a sinful person who was unable to make restitution for sin and who is unable to fix your deepest problems. Let me say that again. Scripture is teaching us that our great high priest is God alone, that Christ alone is qualified to do that for us and not a human relationship with a sinful person who is unable to make restitution for sin and who is unable to fix your deepest problems. So stop expecting your husband or your wife or your job, or your church, or your pastor, or your pet, to make you happy. It sounds, it sounds almost silly, but you know, we've all done this. Can your spouse, your career, your church family, your pastor, can your work help you deepen your relationship with Of course, of course, but none of these things... And nothing else on the planet is qualified to give you access to truly meaningful and fulfilling relationship with God. Nothing. If you think I'm making this up, just, just think with me about this for a second. <clears throat> we all do this in life. We've got our expectations totally backward. We're whooping Penub in the wrong places. How about the young girl who marries with the hope that her husband will meet her needs? All those romantic, warm fuzzies and the expectation of a, of a prince riding in on a white horse to bring her security and love and flowers and kids. Any of us who has been married, any one of us married for more than six months knows this truth well. That poor, pathetic guy who once rode on a white horse, he actually drives a beat-up Pinto. <laughs> he can barely hold down a job. He won't do the dishes. <laughs> we should have discussed that as a place that you're not supposed to clap in. <laughs> we all know in our relationships with people, 
that poor guy is so thoroughly ill-equipped to meet her needs that they are both in for a rude awakening called being sinners. (laughs) I was going to say all the married women give me a hearty amen, (laughs) but that happened already. It, it, It sounds almost silly, but it's something we all do with our backward expectations in life. We are making priests out of people. And we don't even know it. How many men take on jobs with the hope that a career will satisfy? And that kind of provision will make me feel good about myself. It it sounds almost silly to say, but not one man in here hasn't struggled with this. We have all lived this. The rub is this. The problem is we still experience even though we say we intellectually we understand that Jesus is our great high priest and, and not someone else, we still experience the upside-down expectations. And this is a major issue that we experience in our lives, in relationships, in the Christian life, in churches. We are smack dab in the middle of this problem of making people into priests, and many of us don't even know it. We expect a sinful human being to help us heal our hurts that only a perfect Redeemer is equipped to fix. It's why we we must, we must become people whose priority of a relationship with God that is kept vibrant through personal prayer and study of the word and regular worship is of utmost importance for us. It's why we must become people whose priority of a relationship with God in a vertical manner is the means and the overflow through which we live horizontally. We think our spouse or our job is supposed to provide us with fulfillment. We think the body of Christ can do that for us and provide every... Certainly at church, we should be able to get that, right? Church is just a lot of people who are sinners together. What we do is we develop people in a system like that who are dependent upon somebody else for their relationship with God. You see, stealing sheep isn't taking people from other churches. Stealing sheep is selfish and needy church leaders creating churches and believers who are codependently in love with them as priest and shepherd instead of passionately and wholeheartedly in love with the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, alone. It's why becoming a passionate follower of Christ through growth in prayer and the word is so critically important. It's why regular participation in worship and celebration of the work of God in one's life is so critically important. It's why engaging in something other than just worship, but a small group where you have meaningful Christian community is so important. Here's the crazy and redemptive part of all of this. Despite the fact that we are turning it upside down and we've messed up our desire for a perfect priest to mediate relationship with God for us. Despite all that, Jesus' perfection remains now, still pleading for us on our behalf before God to take care of our sin. 
his sinless life and his perfect obedience. They still stand as a testimony calling you and me to obtain access to God. And and graciously even, he's orienting our lives in a way such that we must go through the desert like he did of learning obedience through the trials of life. No one else can be your priest in those trials. No one else can fulfill in those trials. It won't happen. It won't work. We've all experienced that. Only Jesus Christ as the great high priest can make up for those things. That's how he designed it. If you haven't yet realized this truth, then put this firmly into your personal filter for how you interpret your life. It is this. Jesus is absolutely and unequivocally the only possible being in the whole history of existence who is qualified to meet your deepest needs. Remember that, that red cord, that red cord that was placed on the scapegoat that symbolized the people's sins? Tradition has it about that red cord that before they sent that scapegoat out into the wilderness, that scapegoat that represented freedom from sin, before they sent that scapegoat out to the wilderness, the red cord that was placed on the goat's head was taken off and it was hung on the front of the altar or the doorway that went into the temple. Tradition has it that that over the course of the next year, that red cord would mysteriously turn white. Witnesses interpreted that to mean that, that God's supernaturally forgiving the people of their sins. Roughly 40 years before the destruction of the temple, They say the red cord stopped turning from red to white. Forty years before the destruction of the temple, 40 years before A.D. 7, friends, puts you somewhere around the year 30. At about A.D. 30, tradition has it that it stopped working because the old system was no longer effective. Friends, thanks be to God who provided Christ as our great high priest through whom we could find atonement for sin. Let it be an encouragement to you that he alone can meet your deepest needs. Let's pray. Lord, we are aware of seeking after things that have tangible feeling and uh, that we can measure and that we can see physically. We admit that we are aware of seeking after those things in ways that distract us from knowing you alone as our great high priest. We are aware that we've gotten it backwards, Lord, that we turn people into priests when you are the only one qualified to do so. And so we ask again for your forgiveness in this, for 
for your atonement to continue to pay the price for us. It was once for all. And so we name that truth and we claim it as something that is a promise for our life this week, that we would seek relationship with you first and foremost, that that the priority of worshiping you alone because of what you've done for us would be that through which we live as an overflow. And Father, we know you're making us as a community of believers into a people who love you and want to passionately serve and devote our whole lives to you. And so we're forever grateful that you made that possible for us through Jesus as our great high priest. And we ask this in his name. Amen. If you're looking for a church home as a baptized believer, we'd like to invite you in just a moment to come forward. If you're looking to place membership with us, to to be with us as the community of believers. And if you'd like to name Jesus Christ publicly as your Savior by being baptized, we ask that you would also come forward as we stand.